Amen. That uh, last song right there really flows into a lot of what uh, we'll talk about today. So if we didn't plan that, that's just the spirit working and moving. But I just want to welcome you to Calvary Superhero Sunday. I wouldn't normally dress like this from the stage. I know as the young student pastor, already my credibility might be low with some people, and this could just hurt that. So just know I had a nice sweater picked out for this uh, Sunday morning, and then someone said, there's no superheroes on stage. So I rushed over to Walmart and got this beautiful shirt. Uh, so nice. So just for you, just for you. We've had an awesome uh, weekend with our Trunk or Treat last night and Superhero Sunday today. It's always so fun to see people get excited about being at church. Last night I gave myself the task of, be, task of being the candy inspector. So I was going around to all the trunks, making sure the candy was up to state regulations for your kids. And I will say, JR and Christy Smith by far had the best candy, okay? So clap it up for them. Great candy. I was uh, very, very impressed. But I love uh, superheroes, anything superheroes, movies, shows, games. I'm a big fan, okay? Growing up, I had a picture of Spider-Man in my room. Huge picture, and it had his iconic phrase at the bottom, with great power comes great responsibility. And I've always grown up loving superheroes, loving Star Wars. I was told Star Wars aren't superheroes, but I feel like you have a lightsaber and you can jump around and push things like that that qualifies under the superhero labor but I, I love superheroes and as I was thinking this week I was like what makes someone a hero right when we think about it what makes someone a hero right because we have real life heroes in our day and they don't have superpowers super strength they're not a, a spider that can jump all around what makes someone a hero why would we call somebody a hero? And as I was reflecting, I kind of came to this conclusion that a hero is somebody who fights and sacrifices for the greater good of those around them. A hero is someone who gives their life to something greater than themselves. And I, I began to think about Spider-Man, and we think Peter Parker, he's this high school, college-age kid. He gets bit by a radioactive spider, has all these superpowers, and he sacrifices the normal life of a teenage guy to fight supervillains and protect New York City. I thought, that is a hero. And on a more serious note, I was reading an article from uh, 2008. President Bush awarded the military's highest honor to a 19-year-old soldier who was killed in Iraq. A grenade was thrown around his fellow soldiers, and he immediately jumped on it, taking the blast from the grenade, ultimately dying but saving those around him. I thought, that is a hero. Just this past summer, there was a pizza delivery driver who was driving home and he saw a house in flames and he didn't just call 911 and wait for the fire trucks to get there but he actually 25 year old guy runs into the house and saves three teenagers and two children I was watching the video and he comes out you can see his arms are red from the flames but he puts his life on the line to save people that I don't even think he knew I thought that is a hero. We love stories like these, right? They encourage us, they inspire us, they give us those little uh, goosebumps or warm, fuzzy feelings inside. We say, we love heroes. We love people like that soldier or like that pizza delivery guy, or we love Spider-Man. And as I was thinking, we know that when Christ ascended, when he left this earth over 2,000 years ago, the church was started then. And the church has been around for 2,000 years. This is not something that started with America or started just a couple hundred years ago. The church has been a thing for over 2,000 years. And it has a beautiful, rich history of so many men and women who were on fire for Jesus, wanting to spread his love to the nations and have done so many different amazing things. And as I was thinking about it, us as the church in America, we often have no clue about the history of the church. We don't know about the amazing saints like George Lyle or Lottie Moon or Polycarp or Perpetua, right? We, we don't know their stories. We don't know how God has used them. They're these heroes of the faith, but we just don't know what 
they've done. So today I want to do something different. I want to encourage you through Romans 8, 18 through 30. So if you're there, you can turn there. But I also want to talk about the story of Adoniram and Anne Judson. They were missionaries in India back in the 1800s. And I want to encourage you with their story. I think it will show the text in a beautiful way, but it'll encourage you. If you are uh, uh, weary today, wondering if God is working in your life, wondering if he's on your side, this story will encourage you. If you have kind of slipped into a comfortable Christianity that doesn't push you, that doesn't make you uncomfortable at all, his story will challenge you. Ultimately, what I want you to see today is that in the hardest seasons of life, God is working. In the hardest seasons of life, God is working. I want to read the passage for us this morning, Romans 8, 18 through 30. It says this, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we, do not know, uh, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things, uh, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who, who, who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. You are always working. There's never a moment in this life when we are alone. There's never a moment in this life when you are not working all things out for the good of those who love you. We praise you for that. Would your Holy Spirit speak to us in mighty ways? You've already met us in worship. Would you meet us now in your word? Lord, be honored, be glorified. We pray all this in your name. Amen. The first thing we see in verse 18 that Paul is telling us, he talks about our future hope of glory amid suffering. He points us to the fact that the glory that we will see in heaven, the hope of glory is far greater than any suffering that you and my, uh, me might endure in this life. It doesn't take a child very long in this life to realize the harsh reality that there is suffering in this world. By the age of like four or five, a kid knows bad things happen. People do mean things. People make fun of me or parents die. All these awful, terrible realities in our world, a young child learns that from a young age. You and I in this room now, we know that this world is a tough place to live. Bad things happen. People suffer. But although we might face these trials and these tribulations... The suffering that we face now does not compare to the future glory that the Bible promises us in heaven. 
When we think about heaven, we should be a people with an eternal perspective if you're a Christian, right? We don't just think about this world and this earth and what goes on here, but we think about our future hope in heaven. Our future hope encourages us, inspires us, it excites us for what is to come, and it helps us understand suffering in this life. Suffering is temporary, okay? It is for but a season that we suffer, but as a Christian, we know in heaven we will not suffer. We will have the eternal hope, the eternal joy, the eternal glory that we long for. We will have redemption forever. There will be no more suffering. If you were to weigh it out, all the suffering in this life compared to the glory that is to come, it would be in the favor of the glory of God. One pastor says it's like this. The suffering in this life is like one bad night in a hotel, right? And we've all had a bad experience in a hotel before. It's like one bad experience. But heaven is like eternity and the best Airbnb or Verbo that you could imagine. They don't compare at all. Suffering is real, but Paul points us to our future glory. And then in verses 19 through 22, he talks about how our present world suffers from the weight of sin. He says that this world has been subjected to futility. It's been uh, in bondage to corruption, that creation is hurting. It's groaning with the pains of childbirth. We know that from Genesis 3 that there is a curse of sin that rests on mankind, but also creation. We see natural disasters and the decay of this world, pollution from mankind. Our earth is not how it should be. It's not how God created it in Genesis 1 and 2. It's hurting. It's not the way he created it. There is brokenness and hurting even in our creation. Animals weren't supposed to originally die, right? The earth was not supposed to hurt like it is, but he says that it's, it's crying out, it's hurting with the pains of childbirth, which I am a guy, I've never felt the pains of childbirth, but I've seen it now firsthand. It's legitimate, with, even with the best medicine, it hurts, right? And that's what creation is doing. It is in pain because of sin. It bears the weight of sin. It bears the harsh reality of this world. Suffering is all around us, even in creation, even the animals suffer. We see it everywhere. But I want to show you the life of Adoniram Judson. He is a, uh, lived a life that is marked by hardship, is marked by trials and tribulations. I would imagine he could rival anybody in this room with the hardness, the toughness of his life. But he was born into a Christian home, to a very devout family. His father was a pastor. They loved the Lord, went to church, and he was a very, very smart young man. By a young age, he had learned both Greek and Latin, taught himself. Uh, they said his mom taught him how to read in just one week. By one week, he knew how to read, and his dad came home one day, and he was reciting all these different psalms that he had memorized. And throughout high school and college, I took Arabic, uh, Spanish, Greek and Hebrew, I've mastered none of those, okay? And he had Greek and Latin down before his teenage years. Incredible, smart man. But as he grew up and graduated high school, he attended college at Brown University at the age of 16. Very smart, top of his class. But while he was there, his faith that he was brought up in began to falter a bit. It began to become unrooted. Uh, he became friends with a man named Jacob, and Jacob was a skeptic. He was a deist. He did not believe in the Lord, and that began to influence Adonai. He began to reject the faith that he was brought up in, and he graduated college saying, I'm an unbeliever. 
I don't believe in Jesus and this religion that I was brought up in. Very tragic for his family. And so as he graduates college, he begins to travel around. He works with a few plays. He, he goes all over the world. He's really just looking for excitement, right? Uh, trying to live out his young days, looking for thrills, looking for excitement. Whatever he could find, he was going to do. And so one night, he stopped in at this inn for the night, walked in, and the room that they had left for him was next to a man who was dying. And he was like, oh, no big deal. Like, I'm a heavy sleeper. Like, I'll sleep through it. But little did he know that this man was dying a, a, a cruel death, a, a very, not a Hollywood, like, Hallmark picture death, nothing like that. It was very, very hard. He was crying all night, uh, making these loud noises, screaming, all sorts of pain. So it kept Adoniram up all night long as he was listening to this man die this death. And uh, Danny Aiken notes that as Judson was sitting there all night, he was asking himself this question. He said, was this dying man prepared to die? A question that all of us should ask. Am I prepared to die? And so he was asking this question, this unbeliever sitting in his room, listening to this man die, saying, was he prepared for eternity? Yes, and this, this question, he said, was he a Christian calm and strong in the hope of life in heaven? Or was he a sinner shuddering in the dark brink of the lower region. It's funny, his strong convictions about not being a Christian, this awful story began to shake his faith a little bit, began to make him question about the religion that he was brought up in. Finally, he fell asleep and he woke up the next morning and he goes out and he asks the innkeeper, did the man make it last night? And he says, no, 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 he didn't, he didn't make it. He said, oh, it's terrible. And he asked him, who was this man? Who, who, what was his name? And they said he was a student from Brown University. His man was his name was Jacob, and it turned out it was Adonai's best friend in college who had shocked and uprooted his faith was the man that died in the room next to him. You could imagine his shock and horror as he learns that his best friend just died, and he heard it all, and immediately it hit him in his head. His friend Jacob was lost. He did not know Jesus, and at the same time it hit Adonai. He said, I am lost. Writers say that over in his head, he was just thinking the words lost, lost, lost. His friend was gone forever, and he was shaken by it. And so just a, a little while after that, he decides he's not a believer, not a Christian, but he says, I'm going to go to seminary. So he enrolls into seminary, wanting to learn more about the Christian faith, and later on in his first semester, he gets saved. A radical story of redemption, right? God can use anything, and sometimes he has to use the hard situations in life to call us back to him. So he becomes a Christian, gets saved, this amazing call in to ministry. And after hearing different sermons on missions, Adoniram and some of his friends in college, they feel called to the mission field. After hearing about the Great Commission and Jesus' call to go to all the nations, he says, I'm going to go to the mission field. So at the time, he was in the Congregationalist uh, Convention, and so him and his friends talked them into starting a mission board to send them to India. So he decided, I'm going to India, to where people have not heard the gospel. In 1812, he marries his wife, Anne. He writes her this passionate letter. He writes her father a letter. Basically, I'm going to read it later, but he basically says, are you okay with sending your daughter away and never seeing her again? I would think, as most fathers, they would say, no, of course I'm not okay with that. But her father says, Anne, it's your decision. She, just as passionate about the gospel, says, yes, I want to marry him. And they go to India 13 months later. But I want to turn our attention back to Roman, uh, Romans for just a second. 
verses 23 through 25 tell us that just like creation suffers, you and I suffer. We feel the weight of sin as well. We experience pain, and we, just like creation, long for redemption. The Bible tells us that God is not going to throw away this earth. He's not going to just start a new one, but that there will be this new heavens and new earth. This earth will be redeemed, and just like the earth, we will be redeemed. We will have a glorified body in heaven that does not face the curse of sin. We will have no desire to do anything wrong, but we will be worshiping Jesus forever. And if you're a Christian here today, you are saved. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus, redeemed by him. Your status in the family of God is eternally secure. You will never not be a child of God. But when we think about our salvation, we say that our salvation is completed. It's finished once we arrive into heaven. Because the promise of salvation is also that one day we will be freed from sin. We will be redeemed from sin. We will have a glorified body. So for you and I, we look forward to our eternal glory because we know we will be completely and fully redeemed. We are in this kind of already but not yet stage where we are saved, but we're still waiting for the final effects of our salvation to be completed. So while we wait here in this earth, we experience suffering. Some people get mad at God or frustrated with Christians because they say, I thought following Jesus meant that my life was going to be okay. I thought if I follow Jesus, if I go to church, if I give money to the church, then everything in my life is going to work out. I thought that was the deal. Jesus saves me and then corrects everything in my life. I thought this whole Christian thing was that I go to church and then my family and all my kids, they follow Jesus for the rest of their life. I thought that meant my marriage was going to be protected. I thought that meant I wouldn't get sick. But the Bible doesn't promise us health, wealth, and prosperity. The Bible doesn't promise that you will have a perfect, easy life here on earth if you follow Jesus. In fact, it promises that there will be suffering. James says, when the trials come your way, there will be suffering in this life. We await our future glory where there is no suffering. The Bible promises that one day you will be freed from it, but not while you're here on this earth The Bible isn't telling you that you're going to live your best life now according to worldly standards. Adoniram and Ann Judson, they knew what it meant to suffer. They knew that the Bible did not promise them health, wealth, and prosperity. Once they were married, after a short while, they set sail for India, and they originally had planned on being in one city, and they found out at the time they weren't allowed to go there. It wasn't going to be a safe place for them, so they decided to go to Burma. And John Piper says this about the area that they were going to. When Adoniram and Ann Judson entered Burma in 1813, it was hostile and utterly unreached. William Carey had told the Judsons in India a few months earlier to not go there. Today, according to today's standards, it would probably be a closed-off country where you weren't allowed to go there. He said that it was filled with anarchy, fierce war, enemy raids, constant rebellion, and no religious toleration. All the previous missionaries before the Judsons had either died or left Burma, but they decided they were going to go there. And they spent the first 10 years of their time in Burma learning the language. Seven years into his ministry, he preaches his first sermon and nobody gets saved. It's not till months after that they see their first convert come to Christ. So years into their ministry and they only see one person get saved in this hostile, dangerous land. After a few more years, 1822, it would say that they would have had 18 people who had gotten saved and baptized. So these years of serving and toiling and working hard, they see 18 people get saved. 
But in 1824, a war broke out between Burma and the English government of India. So as a result, they viewed every English person in Burma as a spy. And so they looked at Adoniram Judson and said, he is a spy for the English government. So they threw him into prison. He was put into two different prisons. One of them was called Death Prison. The guards there were convicted murderers who were going to be put to death, but they said, you can either die or work at the prison. Terrible living situations. It was small rooms with 100 people packed into the rooms. There was no ventilation. There was no bathrooms, trash cans. The rooms were never washed or cleaned. They had no option for for showers to to clean themselves. It was a disgusting living environment. The floors would have been full of human waste, dying animals, and rotting food. You could just picture in your head the disgusting living environment. He was there for 20 months. It was said that the prisoners were secured with five different fetters on their legs and ankles to keep them from moving. They weighed about 14 pounds. And it said that when Adoniram died, he still had those scars from the fetters that were on his legs. He spent 20 months there. And it's very common in death prisoner for the prisoners to die. Anne is given credit for keeping her husband Alive, She would bribe the guards into letting her sneak him food or give him a pillow. And at one time, she was able to talk them into giving him this pillow. And she sewed his translation of the Bible onto the pillow so he could have it in prison. While she was in prison, she gave birth to one of their children, Maria. And she cared for two other Burmese girls. And if I'm honest, as I reflect on their story, if I say, man, what if this was me? What if this was me? Who I, I, I called my family. I said, we're going to go to an unreached place. We're going to serve Jesus. We're going to sacrifice these earthly pleasures. And if I was there for 10 plus years and this was my reward, being thrown into prison for almost two years, missing the birth of my child, suffering so badly. It, it was said that at night they didn't want the prisoners to run away, so they would lift their feet up into the air to where only their shoulders and head were touching the ground. It says that there were so many mosquitoes and their, their feet were just broken open, bleeding, that the mosquitoes would just continue to bite them all night. It would drive them insane. I said, God, really? That's what you give me? I'm serving you. I'm loving you. I'm doing all this for you, and this is my reward? I honestly was shocked reading his story. How could this be? How could he endure this? They knew what it was like to suffer. And I look at my life and I say, do I really know what it's like to suffer compared to him? Compared to what he's gone through for the sake of the gospel? And I get inconvenienced a little bit and then I say, I'm suffering. It's humbled me in so many ways. They've experienced pain, hardship, and great trials. But listen to this truth from Romans 26 and 27. This is a truth that's good for you, good for me, and it was present for them during this season. It says this in 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. It says that the Spirit prays for us, intercedes for us according to the will of God. In our weakness, in the times when you and I don't know what to pray, when life is so hard that we would say, God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to pray. The Spirit of God himself is praying for you. When you have no clue what to say, no clue where to go, God's Holy Spirit prays for you. He's working on your behalf for your 
good. When he was suffering unjustly in the cruel prison, the spirit was interceding for him. When Anne was trying to keep her child alive and raise these two girls in a hostile foreign land, the spirit was interceding for her. You as a child of God right now, as you walk through trials, the spirit of God intercedes for you. If you read further on in Romans, you see that it says that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for you as well. So you have the Holy Spirit of God and the Son of God praying for you on your behalf, for your good, when you struggle, when you go through hardship. While Adoniram was still in prison, Anne and baby Maria contracted smallpox. They became very sick and Anne almost died while he was in prison. She got so sick that her milk supply dried up, so it's said that she would go around from house to house begging these Burmese mothers to feed her starving, sick baby. It got so bad and she got so sick that she got a petition to let Adonai free at night so he could walk around begging people to feed his starving baby. Fetters on his feet, chains, a prisoner walking around. You picture him carrying his baby saying, please feed her. If you don't, she'll die. And this is a man who's given his life for the gospel. Given his life to reach people, and he's suffering so extremely, affecting his family. But they would make it through. He would be released. Anne would make it through. Maria would make it through. And they would get to spend a year with each other before Anne died from another disease. And then six months later, his daughter died as well. And before that, they had lost two other children, one in childbirth and one at a young age. It would shake Adoniram's faith. It would break him. He went out into the woods, dug a grave, cried, drowned in despair. People said they were worried for him because the jungle that he went into was tiger infested. So they said, he's never coming back. He destroyed all these different letters he had written to all these different people. He sent all his money to the mission board. He said, have it all. He was a broken man. At one point he said this, should be on the screen. During the hard time in his life, he said, God is the great unknown to me. I believe in him, but I find him not. He says, I believe that God is real, but I don't see him in my life. I believe that God is true, that God is working, but I don't see his hand in my life. And maybe you can relate to this in your life now, or you reflect back on something that's happened and you say, I was there, wondering, where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? Why did that person die? Why are they going through a divorce? Why am I struggling like this? Where are you? This wasn't the deal we had worked out. Say, God, I believe you're here. I just don't see you. And this is the road that many Christians walk. God, I have a faith in you, but I don't see your hand working in my life. God would bring Adonai out of his despair and he would marry again. He would have eight children with his second wife, but three of them would pass away. And his wife, Sarah, his second wife of 11 years, would pass away. Again, a life marked by loss, suffering, pain. And as we look back to our passage, we find one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. It says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. And let me just stop right there. 
there's a qualifying little phrase in here. It says, for those who love God. This is one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture, but it is only applied to those who have been redeemed by Jesus, for those who truly love God and have given their life to him. It's not that we earn his love, but this promise is only applied to those who have been saved. The promise is this, that he works all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The Apostle Paul tells us it's all things. It's not just the good situations. It's not just the highlight moments of your life. It's not just the, the fuzzy feelings or the easy times in your life, but everything is used by God for our good. Everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, the mountaintop experiences, and the times where we feel like we're in the valley of the shadow of death. God uses it all for our good. God uses everything his children experience in this broken world for his purposes and for our good. In the life of a Christian, there is no wasted situation. An atheist who has no faith, who doesn't believe in God, they experience hard situations and they just have to chalk it up to it's the, it's the circle of life. It's what happens. Bad things happen. People die. There is no reason for it. I would imagine that be a very depressing way of living. But we as Christians know that even in the worst situations, our God is working on our behalf to bring good out of this situation. And hear me, this is a misunderstood verse. This does not mean that everything in life will feel good. It doesn't mean that in every situation we walk through, we'll be like, God, you're so good. This feels amazing right now. But it's a promise that even in the awful times, God is working on your behalf. He's working it out for good, all things together, for good for those who love him. That is the promise that we can cling to as Christians. That is the promise that Adoniram could cling to as he lost family member and child after child, wife after wife, suffering in prison for two years, but knowing that God was working things out for his good. Life is not always good, but God can redeem all things. We sing the song. We, we sing stuff about this. We sung the song Graves into Gardens last week. And it literally says in the song, you turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. We are admitting when we sing that song that there is mourning in this life, that there are ashes in this life. But we serve a God who can redeem all of that for good. For Adoniram, Anne, Maria, Sarah, and all their other children, the work of their ministry, when Adoniram died, they would have seen 7,000 people in Burma get saved. Originally, no one was saved there. They walk away after serving there faithfully. They see 7,000 people get saved. 63 churches started and 163 missionaries and pastors in Burma. Adoniram translated, we remember he was so smart, so gifted, he translated the whole Bible into the Burmese language along with other tools, devotionals, and gospel tracts. Today in Burma now, the Baptist Convention is the largest there, and there's over 600,000 Christians in this place today. 3,500 churches, and they all trace their beginning back to the Judsons being there, starting the gospel work Today, the translations that he wrote are still being used in Burma. The Holy Spirit is still using the Bible that he translated to save people. I think he would stand here today and say that his life was not wasted, 
that his sacrifices were not in vain, that God was working all things out for good. It didn't feel good. It wasn't a happy ending like all of us desire. It was not the American dream that we chase, but there is an eternal reward that is still, there's a harvest that's still taking place because of the work that they did. And I point you back to verse 18, where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want to read you a letter that Adoniram wrote to Anne's father when he initially wanted to marry her at age 22. We see that the eternal perspective that I was talking about at the beginning, he had this. Even at a young age, he knew what was going to happen. Listen to what he says to her father. He says, I I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, which would be what would take her life, the sickness is there, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. I have this part on the screen. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and died for you? For the sake of perishing immortal, immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent, consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which will redound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. If you're a father, imagine getting that letter, someone asking for your daughter's hand. But we see even at a young age, he had this perspective that no matter what happened to them in India, they would be in heaven one day hearing the shouts of praise from the people in Burma that would be saved. It's incredible. This faith convicts me. My faith, my trust in God feels so small compared to him, compared to her, right? Her father left it in her hands and she said, heck yeah. Let's go. Let's do it. What an amazing story. What an eternal perspective, a hope of glory that was fueling their mission. And I'll close with just three points. Things that I've, I've been thinking on and reflecting on since reading their story and reading this passage. One, I would challenge you. I would challenge all of us to give your life to something greater. All of us are giving ourselves to something every single day. Every moment that you spend, whether it's on your phone, whether at your job, with your children, with your family, sports, whatever it is, we're giving ourselves to something. We're spending our time and devotion on something. My question would be for you and for me, what are we spending our time on? What are we giving our life to? Now I would just challenge you and encourage you to give your life to something greater than yourself. Because so many people spend this whole life just trying to live for themselves. Every single decision that they make is ultimately to benefit themselves. But the Judsons, they gave it all away. 
sacrificed it all. He was a brilliant man. I would imagine he could have been a professor at a nice school, could have had a large church preach to thousands, could have had lots of wealth, prosperity. His wife could have had good health, safe deliveries, a safe, healthy baby. But he gave it all away for the cause of Christ, for the Great Commission, to make Jesus known. What are you giving your life to? And I would encourage you with this. This is something that has been wrecking my thought process, that we should sacrifice for a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one. I've been wrestling with the question, what if God called my family to the mission field? We should make it personal. What if God called me to Burma? What if he called me to an unreached people? Would I go? Would I allow my family to go through that? Would I sacrifice all the comfort that we have here in America to build the kingdom of God? I've heard it said before, it's not an original thought with me, but we can either build an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom. A heavenly kingdom is like this beautiful castle that can't be destroyed, it will never be overtaken, no one can conquer it, it's God's kingdom, it reigns forever. But the kingdoms that we build here on this earth are like sandcastles. We can build them up really nice, really pretty, we can get pretty extravagant with them, we can do some cool things with a sandcastle. But all it takes is one wave or one five-year-old to come along and destroy your sandcastle. But that's what many of us are building here in this life. Earthly, temporary sandcastles that can be destroyed in one moment when we could give our life to a heavenly kingdom. And this doesn't mean that everybody will go to the mission field. It doesn't mean that you have to live poor. It doesn't mean any of that. But it just means that you would be willing to go where the Lord would lead you. And I would talk to my high school juniors and seniors. Have you considered that God might be calling you to serve him? Danny Aiken, the president of my school, would always say this. He would say, you shouldn't ask whether you're called to go to the mission field, but you should ask whether you're called to stay. Because the need is so great. Billions of people have never heard the gospel. Would you sacrifice earthly pleasures so that you could take the gospel to these people? Would we ask how we might sacrifice to send the missionaries, to support missionaries, to build up the heavenly kingdom of God, not to build kingdoms here, but to build his kingdom? And I would just say this last, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, if all this seems kind of weird to you, I would say this, surrender your life to the God who can redeem anything. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you've never given your life to Christ, if I was to ask you this question like Adonai asked himself when his friend Jacob was dying, are you prepared for eternity? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you would have to say, no, I'm not. I'm not prepared. I don't know where I'll go. I don't know where I'll spend eternity. I was talking with an atheist student years ago when I first started uh, as youth pastor here, and we were just kind of chatting. And he was talking to me about what he thinks will happen when he dies, and I was talking about what I think will happen when he dies. And he was like, I think everything's just going to go black, and I'll I'll drift off into nothingness. And he was like, it sounds really kind of poetic and nice. And I was like, are you serious? 
And I was like, you think that sounds nice? Everything in your life will just be dark, like it won't matter? I was like, so everything you experience in this life, the good, the hard, everything that you do just means nothing? And he was like, maybe you've got a good point. He didn't get saved, but I hope the seed was planted. And I hope for you today that it's true for you that you would say, am I ready for eternity? I would encourage you to prepare for eternity. The sufferings in this life are real, but they don't compare to the future glory in heaven and they don't compare to the future suffering in hell. And I would just invite you to a relationship with Jesus, to the God who can save you, who can redeem anything in your life. It's not a promise for a perfect life, but it's a promise that the Son of God will meet you where you're at, save you from your sin, and redeem your life. And so if that's something that you're interested in doing, I would love for you to talk to me after the service. I'd love for you to talk to Pastor David in his Superman shirt. And we would love to just walk through what it looks like to follow Jesus with your life. And so as we sing in response this morning, if you're a Christian, would you just sing in light of what God's done for you? But would you ask yourself the question, God, what are you calling me to do? What might you be calling me to sacrifice, to lay down, to give up? Ask yourself the question, what kind of kingdom are you building with your life? Lord, you are so good.